When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There are so many myths surrounding the Beatles that it can sometimes be hard to tell truth from fiction. Our guest this week has dedicated years to thoroughly investigating the history of the band to ensure his many books on them are built on fact. Kenneth Womack joins us fresh from releasing the second part of his biography of Beatles producer George Martin. I'm Ellen Kerwin. And I'm Laura Davis. And this is the Beatles City Podcast. So, Ellen, I suppose with a band as big as the Beatles, it makes sense that there are many, many myths surrounding them and that stories have sort of spun out of control. Yeah, well, that's true. George Martin actually started one of the myths himself. And it was that he was so adamant that he went to the cabin to watch John and Paul play in the early years before they were ever the Beatles. And, you know, he had it in his head that he knew back then that they were really talented and they were going to be the Beatles and they were going to sell so many records. But it's simply not true. He didn't go and see them perform until the first album was very much underway. And that's when he saw them perform. In that, in that setting but I think over the years he just almost got it in his head and convinced himself that he'd been there from the very start and it wasn't the case that's really strange I guess your memory can play tricks on you even though you were you were there yeah well it, he probably almost wanted that to be true and it wasn't the case so how did Kenneth Martin track this down and work out that he hadn't been there a lot of interviews and speaking to people who were there at the time and reading between the lines he'd take five different people's perspective on one thing that happened and somehow in between all those five different scenarios there would be the truth. So he's got quite a unique perspective because he's had access to all this material. Well yes definitely I mean people we've spoken to previously have all been there at the time but Ken wasn't there however he's he's got all this knowledge from speaking to people who were there at the time so he can paint a really nice picture about what actually happened back then. <laughs> I am here, I'm speaking to Kenneth Womack, who is a Beatles expert. I'm right in saying that, is that right, Ken? It is absolutely right. And, you know, you've you've wrote more than 30 books over the years. Many of them are to do with the Beatles. And um, most recently, you've wrote the biography for George Martin, his later years, and that got released in September this year. Is that right? It absolutely is. Very proud to be George's biographer. That's, well, you know, with someone like you being such a big fan of the Beatles, why is it that you decided to um, really delve into the past of George? Well, that's a great question. And for me, you know, the Beatles is such, offer such a wonderful story about art and the creation of, of great music and really timeless music, right, that we still think mm-hmm. about lo these many years later. And the question for me, and it really still is in many ways, is who was the person who would receive all of this great music? And that person was George Martin. And so I was interested in writing a story, a narrative, in this case, a biography, that would look at this great achievement from the point of view of the person who received the music almost in its originary form. And sometimes George was the first audience for for the latest Lennon and McCartney songs. And if he weren't the first audience, he may have been you know, the, the, the secondary or tertiary audience. So 
I wanted to understand that fascinating story and that achievement from the point of view of that privileged position. Yeah, well, you know, he was known as the fifth Beatle. I think even McCartney himself said that. So he, he was really integral to the, the whole process of the Beatles, really. Absolutely. And I sometimes say, and it, it, this could be a little controversial, so get ready. <laughs> there are times when he's the second or the third Beatle um, because, you know, his level of enthusiasm and passion for a given moment in their project was greater than some of the others. So, you know, it really depends on, on which song and which moment during their career we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. So how did the process start? I mean, it, it was it's quite a big feat. It's quite a big thing to do what you have managed to do. So, you know, was it really overwhelming at the start or was it refreshing? How did you feel and how did you start that process? Well, it was it was quite overwhelming, really. Um, part of it is the sheer breadth of the story. George lives a long life. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, for that reason, you know, there's a lot of years and material to ca- account for. I wanted to try to self-consciously find something new to say um, about the Beatles, about George. So, you know, it was important to ferret out interviews where I was able to get a little bit new information, a little bit of new perspective. But again, um, that's not easy because of the the long nature of their story. So um, I, I, I was forced to contend with that in a way. But really trying to lay it out and create um, a very accurate storyline uh, is always challenging because there are so many different discrepant versions of the Beatles story out there, right? Mm-hmm. So coming up with one that... Um, is is arguable and historically accurate was really the challenge. And there would be moments, by the way, while writing uh, these particular books when I was going with what I believe was the standard understanding of a particular moment in Beatles history, only to find out that something was vastly wrong. And I would literally have to go back, you know, pages and rewrite something, sometimes having to rewrite an entire story arc because I was realizing that something that we had sort of generally and universally come to believe wasn't true. Well, yeah, I think I think with something as big as the Beatles, you know, you're always going to get gossip. You're always going to get stories that are just twisted ever so slightly. But, you know, as they're told year after year, they change really drastically. So what was maybe one of the biggest things that changed and you had to go back during the process? <laughs> well, well, one of them was actually in volume one. Um, there was a George liked to believe that he had gone up to the cavern uh, very, very early in their career um, to to listen to them and get a sense of them for him for himself. Mm-hmm. That was probably an error caused by you know many decades having come between him and the originary event. Um, he does go to the cavern, but it's actually much later. Uh, in uh, the fall of 1962, after they've decided that they're going to make an album, um, he's considering making a a live record for the Please Please Me uh, inaugural album by the Beatles. So it there there would be issues of timing, and in that case, I thought I had a really great, exciting moment in the summer of 1962 where George goes up to the cavern, and it just wasn't true. Uh, and I was wow. getting some of it from his memoir, All You Need Is Ears. And I was excited because I thought I was going to create a great story arc. Well, well, yeah, I thought that was true as well. I, I sort of had the impression that George went when they were really early on in the career to see them in the cavern. But I guess that's not the case. 
it was the case, but it was later. And so it yeah. it kind of threw a wrench into my storyline. Um, but you're you're right about your other point, too, and that is people have created so many mythologies over the years uh, about who played what and recorded what. I was seeing something just yesterday evening that had George going back in the weekend before Sgt. Pepper was released with Paul McCartney, and the two of them were redoing some of Sgt. Pepper, you know, and it was mm-hmm. simply garbage, um, just completely made up out of whole cloth. This notion that they went in after everybody was done and uh, and re-recorded and remixed part of the album that, that didn't happen. Another great one that you hear a lot is that Paul would secretly go in and re-record Ringo's drum parts after yes, hours. I've heard that. A few yeah, times. that that still comes up today. Yeah. And you know, I I give a lot of talks and and when these points come up, there's not a lot I can do other than saying, you know, that's really just not true mm-hmm. um that they they didn't operate that way ringo was a professional drummer and uh while there are a couple of moments where paul plays drums um there wasn't some covert you know activity going on and george martin certainly didn't covertly go back in and uh remix sergeant pepper with only paul present you know yeah. as this person alleged um actually on a pretty reputable magazine that i saw last night so um, you know, there are, there are just so many rabbit holes you can go down uh, with this story. And I think we're very fortunate to have the great work of uh, Mark Lewison, um, because Mark is, you know, um, his day job. Uh, mine's to be dean, uh, and I'm proud to be dean here at Monmouth University. Uh, Mark's day job is to, you know, to work on these facts. And um, thankfully, because of them, we're able to go in and uh, get some um, that means of having a central repository of what we might call truth, right? Yes. So at least we have a place we can work from. And, and Mark has created those opportunities, you know, since the 1980s. So you were a fan primarily, I take it. You were a big fan of the Beatles before you started really looking into them in depth and really finding out about their history. So was there anything that changed, you know, did your opinion change at all when you were really delving into this? Um, well, certainly. Um, and and I, I don't know if I was a fan actually that long, because what happened to me was I discovered them much later than most folks. Uh, it was in the late 1970s. Um, they interrupted my breakfast routine. <laughs> and uh, then the Beatles cartoons came on. And I was immediately struck by the fact that they sounded so much different, differently rather than what I was hearing in the late 1970s on radio. So I became interested as a fan, but also as one who wanted to understand why they were different, what made them special. So even from my earliest days of listening to them, um, those sorts of uh, those sorts of issues were present. As far as what I've discovered by working on these books, um, one of those things it, it really is just how difficult it was to do the work they were doing. There was nothing easy about what the Beatles were doing with George Martin. You know, they mm-hmm. were putting hours upon hours into these projects, but also um, working so very, very hard to refine the sound that they were capturing. Another discovery was, you know, not a surprise, I guess, in retrospect, but wasn't what I expected. George Martin was a fabulous politician, and he had to be to work inside that band. You know, he would ride the waves, the ebbs and flows of uh, power, you know, yeah. different different Beatles, usually Lennon or McCartney would be 
sort of driving the band. He would have to ride the waves of their level of interest and passion. Um, these are 20 something guys he's dealing with who are being pulled in all sorts of directions. So he has to deal with egos. There were times and in his own words where he would assert himself, but at other moments he would retreat, uh, and allow them to fill those power gaps. Um, just very fascinating how he would do this. Um, even, uh, with the white album, which we're celebrating right now with its 50th anniversary, George, um, retreated quite quite uh, noticeably in the fall of 1968. He went on vacation and by doing so gave them some space to, you know, be these 20 something guys who are trying to find their own voice and their own vision. But he comes back, of course, in the nick of time to do the very important cleanup work that many of the tracks on the White Album needed, where he could help them make better decisions about orchestration and the choices that they were making about directionality for a song. Well, the Beatles, you know, we we see them in clips and we hear interviews of them and they, they were, they did mess about quite a bit and, you know, they loved to laugh. But George, he, he did seem different. You know, he seemed a bit more um, professional. I don't, I don't know if maybe that's the right word or like you said, political. He did always have a sort of business cap on. We, did you ever find that he would let loose when you were doing your research or was he always the straight talker and professional producer? That's a great question because it was one that I asked almost everyone I talked to, and that is, did you ever see George um, lose his cool? Did you ever see George um, become upset in some way? Because he was in such control, and uh, I'm sure like me and and Beatles uh, music lovers throughout the world, we've seen George so many times on YouTube, in the anthology series, even going back to the 1980s and the various... Uh, programs that were made at that point. And he always seemed so genial, yeah. so in control. And so what I was trying to understand is what were the things that set him off? And it tended to be um, when people were not taking their work seriously and treating it as an afterthought. A very good early example of that was at the King George Fifth Hotel in Paris. In January 1964, they were working on a project and the Beatles were messing around. And he, he lost his cool with him then. This famous moment, um, I believe in July 1968, where uh, he gets upset with them because they're getting upset with each other. And, uh, you know, those moments, he would sort of show you that he's human, too. Um, but he recognized, as they did most of the time, that they were doing something that was bigger than themselves. You know, they were making um, a real and enduring kind of art. And that is a huge thing and uh, a powerful thing. And there was a reverence for their their achievement that they tended to share where they would fight and they would fight hard over protecting that legacy. And I really admire that, you know, because that's to me, that's the greatest aspect of artistry is knowing some knowing you're doing something and that it's very important to me. That's the definition of brilliance. Right. Yeah. Uh, real smarts yeah. is knowing that this thing we're doing right now is really important. And we're going to we're going to really make this work. There's a great moment in January 1969 where George Harrison has returned to the band. And, you know, there were all sorts of squabbling during those sessions. But when he came back, he sort of pounded on his chest and he said, heart of heart, this is where I should be. And I love that because he's he's realizing that even though he has his ego wrapped up in these issues, even though he gets mad as hell, obviously, Lennon and McCartney at times, he knows he's supposed to be there. 
and he knows it's important to make that art. Did you find out anything about how George felt or how he reacted when the Beatles did come to the end and the members went their separate ways? You know, for George, um, there was, a, I think, a clear sense of relief. He had really had it. It was hard for him to watch that dissolution. He had serious business he needed to conduct with his own company, Air. And I think he was exhausted. If he has a reaction, it's probably a lot like Paul McCartney, uh, who was mourning Beatles' loss. But, but George really could see it coming. That's why he's so grateful that they were able to right their ship, ship, if only briefly, and make Abbey Road. You know, when you go back and you look at his comments and his interviews at the time, he really was exhausted by the whole business um, and this kind of emotional turmoil that they've been going through for, for quite some time and really since mm -hmm. uh, Brian Epstein had died for sure. Do you see, a, you know, a really big shift in his early life and then his later life? I know you sort of split the, bi the biographies up into two different books. So what was the sort of the main difference you, you see in what you found out? Well, his later life becomes not so different from theirs. Obviously, they all have their different highs where they, they're topping the charts. All four Beatles will have number one songs as solo artists. And George Martin will, to his credit, produce several number one songs uh, in summer by, of course, Paul McCartney. But the larger point is that, like them, after the breakup, he is West. They were the sum of their parts, and one of those parts was George Martin. The others, of course, were John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Uh, and once they go their separate ways, they're all sort of scarred by the same issue, and that is that they really were better together uh, than they were separately. But of course, you know, any of us can imagine being 28 or whatever, and you're you're there in the moment of the breakup of the Beatles. You've had this adulation. The world's adored you for your songwriting. At a certain place, you're thinking, well, I can always do this, right? Because, you know, come on, I'm me. <laughs> um, you know, th th this will always be successful uh, because I am so integral to this enterprise. Um, but we're usually kidding ourselves when we say that, right? The, the moments where we're working on a really good team are usually the best. And like the Beatles, George had to deal with the fact that he was going to live the rest of his life in these kind of secondary spaces. Would you say it, it took a toll on, you know, on his life negatively? Or was it maybe the break he needed, like, like you touched on before? Well, he needed a break in the sense that he had a business that had been built to some extent around accommodating his time with the Beatles. Um, he needed to drum up new business. He needed to groom new artists so that he could continue is good work. So that was an issue uh, with which he had to contend. Mm -hmm. You know, but I, I do think he had this recognition uh, of the importance of the Beatles in his life. He gets brought back several times in the 70s, for example, making uh, some of the compilations, the Hollywood Bowl album. In the 80s, he comes back uh, for the CD process of making compact discs. Um, but, but even those moments were filled with frustration because he would often have to really assert himself to get EMI to do the right thing about for their uh, rather on behalf of their most important clients. So um, those moments were not without being fraught with their own levels of frustration, you know, mm -hmm. um, just fascinating stuff. But 
what what's great about George, and this is why I ended the book as I do, the last word is friend. Um, and I do this on purpose because regardless of all of the experiences, sometimes negative, that George had, he really approached the rest of his life as being a friend to their legacy and, and the great music and art that they'd created together. And even when things wouldn't be going his way, he would still work hard for the art. Absolutely. And also you, t- you, you touch on in your book about, you know, some of his darkest secrets and things that you, you, you know, you, you didn't see on the surface with George. You know, if you scratch away at it, then, you know, it all becomes so apparent. But to the everyday eye, nobody would be able to know what was really going on. And what were some of those, you know, deep secrets or revelations that you found through your research? <laughs> well, deep secrets, I don't know. You know, George wasn't the kind to keep a lot of deep secrets. Um, but he lived his life in compartments. He had, uh, for a time, a family um, out in the suburbs and a girlfriend in the city, you know, and uh, he was trying to negotiate between these different kinds of worlds. And when we think about George, he had self-consciously altered his accent during the war years in order to do a bit of social climbing. And so, you know, he was kind of used to living in these different sorts of spaces and in this kind of compartmentalized fashion. Sometimes that would cause trouble. His rise to where he was, to as a producer, that was quite surreal. It was maybe a place in his life where he never thought he'd see himself. I think you're right in saying that. Now, once he got there, though, he expected, as we, I think we all do this, right? He's human. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think he expected to be rewarded and lauded. There's a great moment that Ken Scott told me about um, the the wonderful producer who later works with David Bowie and, of course, worked with the Beatles. Um, there's a great moment where he was waiting for a session to begin. The Beatles had arrived. They were waiting for George Martin, and usually George had been there early, and this was a kind of unusual day. And they're sitting there waiting, and, and Ken is sitting on the front stoop there in the Abbey Road car park, and Brian Epstein pulls up just as George Martin is walking up the steps. And they both look over and they see Brian's limo pulling up outside the car park. And, of course, scores of girls are running up to get Brian's autograph. And, you know, he almost seems like a young idol, right, a movie idol. And George Martin looks over at all this adulation, looks down at Ken Scott and says, that should have been me. It was a strange moment. And and Ken was struck by it because he, you know, couldn't believe that this man, George Martin, who was so carefully controlled, was admitting something like that. But sure Mm -hmm. enough, George did believe that, you know, he should be getting some of that adulation that the Beatles were experiencing during the height of Beatlemania. Certainly when, you know, he put so much of the work in almost behind the scenes with, you know, without as much credit. You mentioned before about him being a bit of a social climber and changing his accent quite a lot. Do you feel he needed to do that more often? The more popular and successful they got, do you think he needed to live up to the standards a little bit more? Maybe so. Um, I think for George, you know, they say that it's the littlest life that get to it. In the later years of the Beatles, he really was in a kind of Cold War with EMI. Even after he leaves to become a freelancer, they give him this terrible, terrible, tiny, picayune rate of uh, residual. and. It's barely enough to make it work. The only reason it does work, that small percentage, is because the Beatles are moving so much product, right? So it does help George in that fashion. But beyond that, 
um, you know, he, he really is taken for a ride uh, on a number of occasions. He only starts making money in the 70s when he opens up professional studios and becomes a kind of proprietor. But because the Beatles weren't necessarily helping him to find fame and fortune in quite the same way uh, as a member of their production team. So what was the most surprising thing that really, you know, sticks in your head when you think about all of the things you found out over the years? Um, Well, uh, I I was speaking to the wonderful um, John Kurlander, who's one of the great uh, members of the Beatles production team, particularly on Abbey Road, and just him describing how George would deal with the, the late Beatles politics of the stress, strife and stress in the studio. And that, you know, he would almost as a kind of suit of armor, he would bring in a big chocolate bar and a bunch of newspapers so that if it were going to be a particularly bad day and they weren't going to call on him to help them, he could sort of indulge in the chocolate and the newspapers and he would share it with the other members of the crew. Um, And he would wait until the right moment came along to help them with their latest recording. And uh, I always find that pretty endearing because it suggests you know, some some good, uh, careful thinking and good politics by George Martin create those spaces of interaction when, in this case, there weren't that many left. During the process, did you ever get a chance to speak to George? I did not. I wrote to him as soon as I had a contract and uh, his representative said, you know, George wishes you well, but he really has gotten to the point where he can, he can no longer hear and uh, I was aware that his hearing had uh, really become shot by that point. And, uh, you know, it was no surprise. But, you know, you have to make an effort. Um, I don't know how much he would have added to anything. You know, when you live that long, you've really said so much of what you're going to say. And so much of what you are going to say should really be measured against those moments when you first said those things, right? Yeah. Uh, because they tend to have the most um, truth them so I did make the efforts but I was very I was not surprised at all that he was he wasn't up for it Mm -hmm. what about his family I know his son is almost following in his footsteps so have you managed to speak to him at all I have Uh, Giles has been quite helpful I've had questions that I've peppered over email and Giles's friend and uh, manager a fellow named Adam has been wonderful Uh, the older son Gregory has been helpful particularly for those early years where we don't have as many witnesses left um, who were able to tell us some details. So really, they were all quite helpful. Um, I haven't had anybody who has, you know, shut me out or anything like that. The problem with George's story is it's a long one. And, you know, we're already at the point where it's difficult to find evidence. Um, it, it really underscores the importance of keeping primary evidence when you're dealing with an important story. Would you ever like to do the same with any of the other members of the Beatles? Um, I'm I'm thinking about it. You know, I would like to perhaps work on uh, the stories of some of the production team. They're typically younger than George, uh, who got into the business uh, at a slightly older time. So, you know, there still could be some stories that are told there. Uh, I thought of this because of my really my great conversations with John Kurlander, who grew up in St. John's Wood, really just around the the corner from the Abbey Road studio. And you start to understand how their own lives did have impact on what was happening there in those great studio spaces. Absolutely. Have you have you ever been to Liverpool? Have you ever made the trip? 
I was there last week, so. <laughs> oh right, yeah, you were in the U.S. with oh, your book. Yeah. yeah, I come to Liverpool uh, two or three times a year. I, I, you know, I have adored what's happened uh, with the docks and the way the city has just remade itself. And I was just reading about how Matthew Street even has some redevelopment plans, which I think are very smart, you know. Yes. It, it, it reminds me over here in the United States of, believe it or not, Texas towns like Austin and Fort Worth, which have rebuilt themselves into these kinds of cultural locales. And Liverpool is just doing magnificent things. I'll be back there. Uh, certainly by the summer and again in September of next year, I just uh, I adore what's happening there. And, you know, um, as important as the Beatles or even football uh, can be to the story of Liverpool, you don't need to go there for either thing. Mm-hmm. It's got wonderful. You have more restaurants than you can ever eat in. And, and the hotels are really stepping up their game. It's, uh, you know, it's an easy trip from London on the train. It's just uh, a magnificent, magnificent place. Oh, that's great. That's great to hear you talk about the city like that. Yeah. Oh, thank you very much. Have you ever seen the Beatles perform? I have seen uh, Ringo many, many times and Paul many times. And uh, in fact, I just saw Ringo at Radio City Music Hall here in the New York City area just just a little bit ago. Wow. Um, And and I got to tell you, um, right before we left Liverpool a couple of weekends ago, we saw the Cavern Club Beatles. I have to say, I was told that they were wonderful. Those guys can really play. <laughs> they're they're doing something quite unique there in the cavern in the sense that they're they're creating not just not even a lookalike kind of experience, which I think too many people worry about. They're a they're a sound alike band. They're sound alike in the way that you should be. In other words, they can really play songs. <laughs> yeah, I'd much prefer that. I'd much prefer to see a band that, you know, can really play to perfection rather than people that, you know, put their wigs on and dress up in the Sgt. Peppers. And, you know, it's all about the sound. It is. And, you know, um, I was struck by them uh, in the sense that they play like the Beatles would be a working band today. They've got big amps, big sound. Um, I mean, the rumble of I Want to Hold Your Hand reminds you that it's not just a silly pop song. It's a song with serious low end. It was quite impressive. Well, thank you very much for taking the time out of your day to speak to us. And it'd be great if we can get you on to speak a little bit more. Maybe next time when you're in the city, you can pop into the studio. You got it. I'll look you up for sure. That'd be great. Thank you very much, Kenneth. Oh, thank you. Bye. <laughs>